0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of uh, FinTechX. I am Hemant Joshi, Vice President of Product Management at credix which is India's largest supply chain finance platform. Today we have uh, with us two very distinguished FinTech experts. Mr. Nikhil Kure, uh, who is CEO at Finarkin Analytics, uh, which is a data analytics company uh, building a holistic data ecosystem to provide a unified solution across data collection, transformation, modeling, and analytics with a very collaborative approach. And uh, we have uh, Mr. Ryan melotra founder and CEO of Neofinity, which is a payment and fintech arm of uh, Neo Group uh, and uh, renowned for its innovative banking and payment uh, solutions. A very, var- very warm welcome uh, to, uh, to both of you uh, uh, to uh, Fintech X powered by Credex. So today's topic uh, of discussion is on open banking, uh, its innovation and uh, security concerns. Open banking represents a dynamic shift in financial landscape, uh, fostering innovation, uh, but raising critical questions about security as well. While the pedigree uh, uh, introduces uh, a wealth of innovative services the proliferation of uh, open banking brings forth uh, the security concerns as well and uh, it necessi- necessitates a delicate balance between innovation and safeguarding sensitive financial data so uh with that uh, uh, i would uh, like uh, mr Nikhil uh, to uh, uh, i mean for the uh for our listeners You start uh, with introducing open banking and its uh, uh, innovative services. So that uh, everyone of, I mean, uh, there are different definitions of open banking that are uh, floating in the market and uh, to everyone's context, they build a definition around that. So it would be great, Nikhil, if you can uh, uh, define uh, open banking first and then we carry on with the discussion.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me on the podcast. Great to be here. Um, so, hi everyone. I'm Nikhil, uh, one of the founders here at Finarkin Analytics, and um, today, you know, we're talking about all things open banking, open finance. So, uh, quickly, uh, you know, a bit about uh, my background, and then um, you know, we dive into open banking. So, I worked as a data engineer for a few years before I decided to to sort of start a full time um in the financial services space and then eventually you know on the open data side of things but uh you know coming back to uh, open banking right so open banking uh you know in the global context has primarily been around payments right historically uh payments has been a four-party five-party system when it comes to um you know interparty payments for the longest of times and uh, how it has been uh, settled, um, you know, has evolved uh, over the years. But lastly, um, you know, uh, simply because of the complexity uh, involved, right? Uh, there is the concept of interchange and so on. So now, uh, when it comes to open banking, the idea, I think, you know, the initial idea when it started in the European Union and UK was that uh, can we have accounts to accounts payments, right, directly? you know inter-account payments right so that was the core premise for open banking payments to begin with and then in the next iteration of open banking um you know it moved from just payments to to you know more of data sharing right so uh, again interchangeably people call it open finance um if it moves beyond just banking data or you know if you're moving from pure transaction banking to actually data sharing um again you know um it's a catch-all phrase, open banking, open finance. So this is the global context because, you know, globally there is not really an NPCI to drive something like a, a UPI or, you know, all the other payment trails we have here in, in in India, like an IMPS switch or, you know, other payments and rupee and so on. So um, coming to the Indian context around open banking very quickly, um, by the time, you know, we had the, you uh, uh, the RBI regulation around open banking for India. This was, you know, late, um, 2016, uh, around September of 2016 or so when the departing governor, I think, um, you know, one of his last few acts was signing off on the NBFC account aggregator regulation. So, um, the core premise for open banking in India was that payments, you know, to a large extent, um, was in the. Domain and where, uh, and of the NPCI right, which is already a shareholder a party, um, you know, with, with various public and private banks, right. So um, they really wanted to move the narrative from payments to to data sharing, and that is what um, the push for, uh, you know, this new category of NBFC is called the NBFC account aggregator has been in India. So in the Indian context, you know, when we are talking about open banking. Uh, the payments piece is what I would say you know gets picked up by um, uh, NPCI, while the data uh, you know side of things gets picked up under the NBFC account aggregator regulation. And um, a quick definition of that is it is a purely a consent manager that is data blind, and um, is you know used by individuals and organizations to connect their financial accounts. Um, say that bank accounts, demat accounts, mutual funds, GSC data, and um, about eight to ten more asset classes, which are live today, and and then subsequently with your explicit consent, sharing that with the with an, another you know regulated financial services organization who has a legitimate purpose to request that data, right? So that's the broad definition, and uh, yeah, I'll just take a pause here
0: did thanks Nikhil uh, you very well defined uh, uh, from the history how the open banking started and uh, where we are today and uh, especially in the indian context what we are doing ryan i would like you to uh, uh, if you uh, can call out few of the innovative services that are uh, possible due to open banking and which were uh, missing from uh, uh, i would say traditional banking uh, framework and i mean what what are the uh, innovations happening in the opening uh, open banking uh, uh, space uh, which are i mean uh, very useful for the end, end consumers
2: so bye, so a
0: uh, couple of things yeah number one is with what
2: definition nikil gave if you just expound on that it's a open banking is a symbiotic and a synthetic relationship as you can call it, between a bank you know different between two financial entities one of them may be a bank or an NBFC, and the other could be a fintech and what we've seen is that this bank marries fintech concepts have done uh, done very well in the past i'll just give you a few examples uh, the first one is that phone pay uh, is the biggest upi uh Sorry, PhonePay has the largest uh, number of UPI transactions in the last few quarters. It's the biggest, it's the most popular UPI app in India right now. I so think It has a 45-46% market share. But, but the backend power in PhonePay is actually Yes bank So by default, Yes bank YBN, VPAs have... So everyone is a Yes bank UPI customer even without knowing that they are a X-Bank, UPI customer. And if you look at any other category in FinTech, it is not generally the banks that are on top of that category, despite having an unfair advantage. For example, with wallets, Paytm is the largest wallet in the country. It is not a bank. UPI apps: the top three UPI apps are PhonePe, pay, Google Pay, Paytm. None of them are a bank. You also have uh, the largest, uh, sorry, the largest uh, brokers, broking services. Zeroth, which is not a bank. What we see is that fintechs are very good in acquiring customers and creating experiences and creating uh, solutions for the customers, wherein banks provide a very reliable backend and a banking solution. So, a few use cases that may emerge. have given you UPS one use case, but what we have seen is neo banking is a very popular use case in the European countries. The trend is yet to pick up in India, but you have the likes of Neos and Jupiter who are doing well. You also have a lot of BNPL use cases that will be merged. India is a very credit-hungry country. Going forward, the need for credit is going to increase. So I do see that happening. At one point of time, payment gateways are also uh, done by banks. So Razorpay, for the longest time, used to use a wrapper by BFC. But in the modern-day context, I see apart from payments, credit, uh, underwriting of credit, also certain new use cases that did not exist before. For example, contactless payments and you know some other uh, technologies for making payments will emerge. So banking and payments are the foreground and credit is something that will pick up in my opinion.
0: Great, great. These are, I mean, uh, really exciting use cases if, uh, I mean, anyways, India is uh, in the uh, forefront of uh, innovations within the payment and uh, credit space. And uh, uh, the use cases that you talked about, uh, if, if they become uh, the reality, uh, will be a significant i mean uh, advancement uh, in terms of uh, the payments and credit so uh, uh, although i mean uh, ryan you talked about uh, uh, like uh, there are innovative use cases uh, there would be certain uh, security concerns with uh, with the open uh, banking as well all the data sharing inter account uh, data sharing and uh, uh, things uh, around that so how do you uh, uh, I mean, uh, see uh, these uh, security concerns? How do you identify and analyze potential risks uh, associated with it and uh, how we can manage them?
2: I, I have uh, launched two and I'm launching two more apps this year. So I've previously also launched two FinTech apps and two more are coming up. And the biggest discussions that happen around and the biggest uh, uh, red flags to all of them is security. I'll give you, in fact, a personal example of how this happened. Uh, maybe off topic, but it'll be useful for the listeners. But just, to, just to answer your question first, so it is a constant negotiation between. Uh, you are a product manager. You know this, so it's a, it's a constant negotiation between giving your customer the best possible user experience, and at the same time managing risks. No, none of us likes OTP. The biggest drop-off point, as you know, as a PM, and also. Nikhil will know as a business owner that um, there are a lot of OTPs that are asked. You know, you first verify your mobile number, then you verify your, then you uh, do you compute your KYC for DMAT or a prepaid or credit card, then you do a video KYC or a full KYC using any of the other methods. And it, it is so cumbersome as a app creator or as a product manager, you, you constantly frustrate over it. And that's why we are seeing other alternatives to it as well. Similarly, for example, we are doing a contactless payment wearable now and the issue is that up to 5,000 rupees RBI does not allow for a pin. But the problem is that if some if someone can just come and put a card machine next to your wearable and the payment goes through, who's liable? Because the liability shift is always on the issuer in this case. So I think it's, it's a constant uh, negotiation between giving your customer the best possible experience in the least possible uh sorry it, it is a, a constant negotiation between giving the customer the best possible experience with the uh, least amount of resistance that is there but at the same time we have to be careful about security i'll give you a few trends that i feel going forward will change one of them is ai i really think especially in payments and in terms of um, financial frauds you will see that ai will play a major role where we will be able to assess the risk pretty quickly Mm-hmm. Um, just given the trends and you know, how, how the spending pattern of the customer is changing or if it's easily some unpredicted transaction patterns, etc. Also the underwriting will improve, I believe. Another financial fraud is where people take loans and don't return that. I think with AI, that will also increase. Uh, apart from AI, I feel that there will be other forms of uh, verification. For example, social media, For have, uh, apart from being a business owner, I'm also uh, a content creator online. So yeah. I've got good fans following. So can that be used as a, uh, what do you call it, a collateral to give me credit against my following or something. I think those things will come up. Having said that, I'll just share one personal example that I personally believe that despite all Amitabh Bachchan's and everyone telling you that uh, Jagrut Baniye, Surakshit Baniye, etc. These frauds are very real. These happen in the real world. We launched an app called Slepe and it was in. Initial phases and suddenly we see saw a spike in the transactions happening. Suddenly the lot of people, it was a prepaid uh, card. A lot of people started putting money into that app. We got happy. We said, Oh, so many transactions happening, so many. So let's say it was going at 10 lakh per day and suddenly it hit one crore and then two crore loads. And we thought, oh, we made such a good app giving parties and all. The next day or two, three days later, we got a call from Jharkhand police station saying that you know there is someone has uh, requested a char and then we decided to decipher, I said, what happened? Because we were just initially, It was just the first few months of launch and we were, we thought we got some early success. What we saw is that some people, again, This is, there's a series about this in Netflix for Jamtara. Incidentally, it also happened in the same town as the series. And what we saw is that there were people, so what they were doing is most of you have a Paytm account, Paytm, UPI uh, account. You've created it and you don't even know about it. The syntax is your mobile number followed by Adderick Paytm. So this guy, this group of guys, what they will do is they'll put one mobile number. Let's say it's one, two, three, four at the rate ATM. Then they'll do one, two, three, five at the rate ATM. They'll just keep on changing the last digit, then the last two digits, then the last three digits. And they'll keep on making calls to these people saying that you've got, we are sending you 10,000 rupees. We okay. are from Tata and all that. And just open your UPI app and interrupt and you'll receive 10,000 rupees. And I would be like, who falls for this despite so much awareness? Why is this happening? You've seen, but but the problem is that even if one in hundred people fall for it, this guy will just make ten thousand calls,
0: yeah.
2: and and they still fall for it. And so now, what you see this year, what has happened is, uh, starting January, they have said all inoperative UPI VPS will now be uh, will now be shared. So if you have a Paytm UPI ID which you did not use till first of January twenty twenty four, it'll automatically be Shell, it will be archived. So it is, as I said, a constant negotiation. It's a constant, um, you know, sometimes the hackers win, sometimes we win, and they keep on getting better, and we keep on getting better. And then I think we need to respect the regulators, but regulators also need to respect the user experience we want to create. So it's it's a negotiation. At the end of it all, we'll figure it out, but then the hackers will figure something better out, and then we have to figure it out again.
0: Rightly put. Nikhil, you also uh, do a lot of data collection and uh, transformation uh, within your product. So how do you see uh, these uh, security risks and uh, uh, what are the things uh, uh, that you want to highlight about how to handle these uh, security concerns?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. One is, in fact, apart from the use cases mentioned, we actually work with a lot of insurance companies in India. So most of the life and uh, quite a few of the general insurance companies, um, I guess, except LIC, pretty much all the major insurers uh, <laughs> we work with. And uh, what we've understood is that um, you know there are there is you know more than one way to to sort of peel the apple, right? Um, open banking is really opening up, <laughs> uh, you know, different options and different journeys and different experiences and it is a very frictionful journey because you know it's just in the very early days right now. So I'll give you guys an example. If you are completely new to the uh, account aggregator framework, you would need to enter um, n plus one OTPs where n is the number of accounts you want to link per bank or per insurer or per DMAT provider. Right. So the the first time new to a customer journey is full of friction, full of drop-off points. Um, you know there are things like auto discovery APIs that some of the banks and and you know other information providers are providing to make it um, you know somewhat seamless. But it's still you know very early days. Um, so there are lots of frictions, uh, and in spite of that, you know at the pace at which it's growing even from a fairly large base, right? It's, it's tremendous. Um, so it's growing at about 20 to 30% month on month. Um, and, um, I think the base right now is somewhere around seven, seven or 8 million, um, you know, transactions a month last I checked. Um, so growing fairly quickly. And, uh, this is, you know, without the big banks really, Figuring out the scale use cases, right? So we're still waiting for the biggest distribution footprint players to, you know, really start um, ramping up. This is just, you know, the smaller fintechs, relatively smaller fintechs, who are driving uh, volume today, right? In spite, but in spite of all of this, it's still a a significant amount of data that is, um, you know, flowing um, through through this entire ecosystem, and I think. It, even at Finarkin level, we pro- probably process data for about 1.2, 1.5 cr unique uh, Indians this financial year, right? And we still have this quarter to go, so uh, there is meaningful scale, and uh, you know the measures that we've taken to make sure that uh, there is zero compromise in you know uh, data privacy or security are 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 a few, and. Uh, I, I think you know the premise for Finarcan was always that um, every company is probably going to be a data company, or intelligence company, and a security company, right? I think these are the three core pillars we have also aligned ourselves on from uh, day zero. And uh, with that in mind, you know what we try to do was we try to build out a compute layer that has you know privacy-preserving and enhancing techniques baked in. So we're talking about uh, you know differential privacy. We're talking about um, you know glass box models. So uh, in financial services and healthcare, the two domains you know where we operate, both are extremely highly regulated, and uh, you know there is just zero scope for um, you know going wrong, right? So listeners, you know you anybody who's listening and is a business owner who wants to you know participate in the open banking space, Uh, you know, couple of, you know, hygiene, good to have bare minimums that, you know, you should look at is, look at, um, you know, standards around um, ISO 27001 and SOC2. I think those are the bare minimums with respect to how, uh, you know, you should be storing data. When it comes to similarly data in transit, you want to look at at least, you know, TLS, which is the transport layer security, Uh, protocol so you want to look at anywhere you know TLS 1.2 and above obviously and uh, you want data to be encrypted uh, at rest as well right so beyond just the bare minimum these are um, some of the basic things you want to look at along with you know good uh, measures around identity and access management right so once you have the bare minimum sort of checked off and I understand that you know especially for a startup these are not bare minimums. Like a SOC 2 compliance is a is a headache. Uh, but you know it's a headache that's worth it, right? And uh, I I believe you know um, these uh, defaults and rules you know rules of thumbs are there for a reason. Somebody has burnt their fingers uh, before us and has set precedents to you know bring us these standards. So we should definitely follow these standards. And then beyond, you know, what is the bare minimum that the law or the standards may ask you to do, there is still an optionality, a choice for you as an organization to go above and beyond, right? And um, it's a conscious decision you have to take as an organization. Um, how we've tried to look at it is, you know, customers are still lacking awareness, right, as to how these frameworks are working, and often. Uh, innovation outpaces regulation by a by a mile, right? So it it's taking a while for our regulators to also figure out, you know, what are the sort of novel use cases which are coming up, um, and you know, say, can a insurer request GSC data, right, for a particular use case, right? So that has to be figured out. You know, is are you asking for the appropriate information for mm-hmm. the right use case? So you want to do what is known as purpose limitation. Right. So you want a minimal data footprint as a data consumer and you want to request information only that's relevant to your use case because with more data comes more responsibility and liability as well. Um, so beyond, uh, you know, these certain uh, bits, you can also look at consent and purpose limitation. So what that means is if you're asking and seeking consent for a specific uh, purpose. Today, under the regulations, the consent artifact, which is uh, under the Metis consent artifact is legally binding. But that being said, there are no technical means to enforce it. You are reliant on the goodwill and the compliance team and uh, the regulators, you know, checking after the fact that your data was not misused, um, you know, for any other uh, purposes, right? So we have been working um and trying to push the ecosystem towards a technical enforcement as well right so you can have technologies like confidential compute and instead of data moving to say logic the logic can move to a neutral third-party location where data and logic are processed together and only the derived information you know um reaches the uh, mm-hmm. the user so if if i want to take a quick example uh you know let's say Nikhil's bank statement is used when he applies for a credit card, right? Uh, to determine if Nikhil is making the right salary and is is you know eligible uh, for that particular uh, credit card, and if so, you know what should be the credit limit that you know should be assigned. Now, does the credit card company necessarily need to know how much am I spending on a Swiggy or a Zomato? Right? I don't think so. Um, so. So you know, can can the credit cards um, underwriting policy and their business rule engine and you know all of that logic be pushed to a secure location and the data also be pushed to that secure location, and the credit card company you know gets evidence and proof that you know that data had come in digitally signed and encrypted, it was processed in a secure manner, and it is my logic which is run on the data. and this is the derived information I've got right. So I think this is a good win-win walkaway sort of, uh, you know, solution that can come about. Um, so, so that's the direction you know we are trying to tug the ecosystem towards. Um, but you know, let's see how how things go, right? So that's the the overview. I feel that there are regulations and there are standards that you can follow, and then you know there is um, scope and um, you know for for innovation to go above and beyond as well
0: great great Uh, so uh, these are the inward uh, measures uh, security measures uh, that i talk about which a company or a business owner can uh, uh, take but there is uh, uh, one part of it i mean uh, Nikhil uh, briefly uh, talked about it uh, the customer awareness which is generally on the lower side so uh, uh, ryan could you throw some light on how Customer awareness uh, can help uh, I mean uh, uh, address many of the security concerns that are there with the open banking and how we can empower uh, these customers to make more informed decisions so that uh, uh, these security issues or incidents can be avoided sure. so two three things eh?
2: number one is yes. Going from my previous uh, statement, when I said it's a constant struggle and it's a constant game. A very good example of this would be if you've seen Tom and Jerry, where every day Tom tries to catch Jerry, some days Tom wins, most of the time Jerry wins. It is the same rule. The customer is Jerry and the hacker is Tom. Sometimes hacker wins, sometimes Jerry wins, but it's the same game again and again in different scenarios. As technologies evolve, hackers and hacking also evolve. So there are new types of scams that keep on coming. There are new types of things that keep on coming. Our awareness in terms of those new scams is very limited. In fact, more than government and financial institution, influencers are the ones where you get to know most of these scams. The most, most of these scams get unveiled on Instagram and they become viral. And that is how you know many of us come to know about this. I share one uh, particular scam, which is that now what will happen is someone will come to your house. I'm not sure if you are aware of this. Someone will come to your house, pretending to be an Amazon Korean guy. Then he'll call you up and he'll say, do you have an order? You will say, I don't have an order. And he'll say, okay, then dial star 419, followed by your phone number. If you want to cancel this order. Once you do that, any call that is coming to your phone will now be forwarded to that guy. What you've done is you've accidentally he'll enabled call forwarding, yes, forwarding. Call, call forwarding. Call so forwarding. Now what he'll do next is he'll, whatever bank you have HDFC, quota, IC, IC, he'll try resetting your pins or try changing your passwords or try doing transactions where ins- or even better what he'll do is he'll just go to whatsapp and request otp on call rather than on sms and what will happen is your otp will come to his phone because your call is now forwarded now this is the scam that i'll say 95 percent indians don't know about right and people who are online and people who are aware you are aware of course because in this industry i have made a video about this separately for my instagram so i know my followers are aware and a lot of other followers are aware in that Instagram. But people who are not online, uh, and it is not that all urban people are also online, you know, your father, your mother, your uncles, your aunts, they are also in that vulnerability zone. So what I feel is that a constant awareness needs to be there and it is, sorry, I'll do this again. And what's surprising is we've done this before. When COVID came, you would hear Mr. Bachan before every call saying that you should wear masks, you should wear, you should maintain uh, 12 feet you uh, know, uh, distance, etc. So when we want to make people aware, we do that. But some financial fraud is something that happens on a daily basis. And you've now been hearing a lot of cases um, recently. I think in the last one month also, there are, there are a lot of UPS scams that have come up, there are a lot of other things that are happening. I just feel the awareness is not on that level. All we are aware of is no, don't share your OTP when someone asks for it. right? But then the thing is you have OTP, as even Nikhil was saying, you have OTP in everything. From an Amazon order to a Swiggy order to a Zomato order to my my gate downstairs, everyone has an OTP. So you keep on sharing those OTPs. That is one part. Second part, I feel, and this might be funny to some of you, in India, the risk of privacy is a very uh, weird concept. I'll give you an example. In India, we won't sign up to an app. We won't give your email statement to cred or a financial app because you are you know they they're monitoring it etc. You will not. Uh, you, you'll think three times, you'll see the read policy and terms and conditions etc. And you'll you know, then troll the company, you'll put a screenshot online and stuff. But then you'll go to shop for vegetables and some club Mahindra guy will come and he'll give your phone number to him. You'll go to a hotel, every hotel from a five star to a normal hotel or an OYO. What you'll do is you'll go and you'll give your Aadhaar card, he'll make a photocopy of your Aadhaar card and he'll it there. And it's there with hundred other Aadhaar cards photocopy. Aadhaar is the main prime identity. What happens to it after you check in, right? So in India, the concept of privacy is also very, very vague. Wherein things that should offend us, don't offend us and things that do offend us should actually not be taken that seriously. My point is that this, now if I'm now that i made some people aware with this Aadhaar thing, next time you're giving this Aadhaar card, you'll have it in the back of your mind. Every listener will go, why am I giving this photocopy? Where is it going? Etc. So my point is constant awareness needs to be there in all forms of social media in all forms of you know digital media etc let's just not let's just not stick to the basics of not sharing otps let let people be aware of what scams are out there most of you don't know this but upi is the lions upi has the lions share when it comes to financial fraud yeah it has about 65% of all financial frauds but of course because of a lot of other reasons we don't talk about it because upi is india's uh, which is upi by no doubt is uh, something not to be proud of but we should also be aware of it's risk. So again, just going back to it, constant awareness is required and constant updation of these messages to cover the exact fraud or the uh, latest frauds that are out there is should be there. Let's not just rely on social media influencers to pick it up when the topic is trending.
0: Great, great. Correct. I mean, rightly so. Uh, I mean, uh, OTPs and even, even I was thinking joe, every hotel asks for The address proof, although I mean, most sought after, most easiest easiest one is uh, Aadhaar card. And uh, even though there is a regulation that nobody can keep your Aadhaar card uh, without masking that Aadhaar number, uh, it is lying as it is. I'm not even sure how many Indians have gone
2: in for a masked Aadhaar card or a VID. I don't think my parents haven't. So
0: that is correct, correct, correct. So uh, uh, that's great. So Nikhil, I will uh, come back to you uh, talking about uh, uh, what are the future trends you see in the open banking space, both in terms of use cases and uh, the uh, evolved regulations or modified regulations. Uh, uh, So one is, I mean, again, nobody knows the future. But how do you see them evolving? Uh, so, So yeah, over to you.
1: Yeah. So uh, big brother is coming. I think uh, the government is, um, you know, and and, and I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, We have the evolved version of 26 years today. I think not many people are aware that, you know, there is this new uh, AI statement, account information statement, you know, uh, when we go to file our taxes. That has already a lot of very good detailed information, right, about your um, share transactions, mutual fund transactions. Um, if you know there was some sort of TDS, but uh, largely the the rail that is being used here is your PAN. So your PAN is being used as an identifier to collate, um, you know, whatever today comes in the AI statement. I believe that uh, you know the once the biggest banks and the demat. Uh, companies and and, you know all of these information providers have built rails uh to share ad hoc you know uh, financial data with regulated entities at scale i think some of these rails will probably be reused um you know by the government um i don't know how the regulation and you know that's that's a minefield i will not delve into um that's for the courts and the regulators and our government, our elected government to decide, but uh, it's a very technically viable use case where, uh, you know, India is a country of indirect taxation, but as the economy grows at six, seven, eight percent compounding, right, I think uh, the base will expand. We have a young population um, and uh, we are moving from bare necessities to a consumption uh, economy. So. I, I believe you know um, use cases around subsidy eligibility uh, transfer um, taxation to be massive use cases which will open up in the near future, right? Um, and 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 once these open up, these are essentially monopolies of sorts, right? So let's say you want to um, you know uh, avail some sort of um, subsidy for a specific scheme. Right. Uh, or, or, you know, um, we, we take the example of the Umang app, for example, right. A lot of uh, the Umang app is essentially a coalition of, you know, various, um, government services and, and, you know, APIs bundled together in a single app. Right. But, uh, uh, tomorrow, you know, if we want to avail some sort of uh, subsidies or something, maybe we'll come in the Umang app or, you know, maybe it'll come somewhere else my point is you know these these rails would be fundamentally monopolistic in nature it's a one way traffic of sorts that uh, you know um, and and these rails i believe would leverage um, you know uh, the open banking infrastructure effectively where where applicable of course right i think we also have great um, uh, you know judiciary in in our current uh, Supreme Court, we have the right to privacy and and you know all of those things. The Aadhaar Act had had, had also had to you know uh, like Aadhaar came before the Aadhaar Act, right? I think not listeners are not aware, but regulation around how Aadhaar is supposed to be used followed almost five five and a half years, you know after the launch of Aadhaar, right? So uh, eventually regulation will catch up with innovation, but it's that arbitrage. Uh, opportunity slash gray zone is where we are at. Uh, I feel, you know, it's it's all the wild wild west with, um, you know, new use cases, new information providers and new information users going live every day on the um, AI ecosystem all in the ambit of the current law. Uh, but uh, I, I believe that, you know, uh, regulation has to expand. So that's, that's, you know, one of those use cases I feel will, will open up. Beyond that, you know, we think a lot of the uh Indian economy is driven by the the informal um you know uh, space uh and a lot of the informal space you know when you provide them with credit with insurance and with other core financial products beyond um everything else they're also able to generate employment right I think if you have a young population everybody talks about the um uh, you know the your dividend and, and you know all of that. I think that can only be effectively capitalized when there is meaningful employment, when there is upward mobility, when um, you know um, these these people are actually given fulfilling jobs and opportunities, right? And for all of that to work, um, every you know uh, major consultant, big four, or the last few years have had reports around uh the msme credit gap and and you know um i don't know how big that number is i am no expert to really quantify that number all i do know is based on you know our customers and and our feet on the street there is a gap right um and i believe that's the other major use case you know which can be addressed as to how and and, you know that i see as opening the school prop stack is what i call it so you know who is going to build personal finance for sole props, who's going to build, uh, you know, um, local private, uh, you know, networks, the sole props may not be online, but today they are using a lot of services and, you know, they're part of digital or digital networks who themselves have data. Right. So the sole proprietor may not have a digital footprint, but they're part of networks where they are generating a digital footprint. Right. And, uh, these networks themselves, can participate um, and leverage open banking, open finance effectively to offer. Um, So these are the embedded uh, financial products, right? So these are the two major use cases I see sort of really ramping up in the near term uh, future. Yeah.
0: Yeah, sounds exciting. Uh, So Ryan, uh, in the very, very initial uh, question, I mean, when we were talking about open banking, You talked about uh, the partnership uh, among the fintechs and the uh, banks. So I would like to bring it up uh, uh, again and uh, would like you to uh, double click on that and uh, go a little deeper on how uh, the collaboration between the financial institution, fintechs and uh, regulatory bodies uh, can uh, contribute in creating more uh, uh, secure uh, framework for open banking and uh, resulting, uh, which can result in uh, the multiple use cases that Nikhil talked about.
2: Sure. So I think going forward, the way I see banks and fintechs interacting and regulators will come to in just a second. But the way banks and fintechs should interact is that they should play on each other's strengths. So a bank is a serious institution. Which is supposed to do all the bank and it's a very big and a very large institution that does not care too much about growing rapidly but growing steadily. And a fintech, on the other hand, is a startup generally who's raised a lot of money and has a lot of burn uh, capacity that it can spend and acquire more customers fast. Banks are working on big level problems, fintechs generally are working on small level problems. So I I think. the best cases of these things are where a bank is, and this I really believe in the next five to ten years, what you will see is that a bank will become some sort of a back-end uh, processor, wherein a FinTech will become the front-end app. So that things keep on changing. So I'll, I'll share a personal example. Five years, four five years ago, there was this hot word called neo banking. So a lot of my investor friends who used to invest in startups, they would come to me and say, Neo banking is hot, let's put our money into neo banking. What we saw is, however, that after four five years, not much new banks have survived. There are a lot of new banks, now only a few are there. What has happened, however, is banks have taken up that role themselves. Where an IndusInd Bank says I can launch in an India, and a Kotak says I can launch in eight one one, SBI said I can launch in uh, I can launch a YONO. So suddenly, what you see a bank is trying to be a fintech, but more often than not, that does not work. Mobile wallet is a very good example where everyone was taking a mobile wallet license at one point of time. Today, all banks are their mobile wallets. In fact, after UP, all wallets are shut down, but only Paytm and maybe MobiQuick are there. So, going forward, I think people should stick to their roles because that will, what we have seen is in products where this has happened organically and in a very good way, those are the products that have scaled very well. Where you see a product like One Card, where the credit metal credit card has been done by the tech company, but then you have very strong banks backing it. And you see the kind of scale that they have produced. And I can keep on going, but I just don't want to name more of my players, uh, but, but these, these kind of partnerships and in us, if you talk about, there's an app called mint that has done recently very well. And uh, some other apps as well And curve is an app in UK that has done very well uh, and I can keep on going, but the, the fundamental fact remains: a bank will become a backend processor who will keep the fintechs in check, who will do the heavy lifting in terms of the transaction processing and the ops and other things maybe even underwriting in some cases, but the FinTech on the other hand has to create those kind of experiences and has to solve those problems because a bank is very far from those problems in my opinion. A regulator on the other hand, will have to play the vigilante role wherein as soon as they see that either the bank or the FinTech is going slightly astray, they have to get them in check. It is not that FinTechs are by the way wrongly blamed. I know there are a lot of examples where FinTechs have done things which are not very, uh, parliamentary for no better example where you know you've seen chinese funding coming in and you've seen people misuse kyc and you've seen people uh misuse sips etc but even banks are done right there are certain banks who are reprimanded for kyc so are there, there are a few banks who are part- partnering excessively with fintechs but they are not able to do anything now there were certain banks who charge you know false fees so it's that only fintechs are the bad boys even banks tend to be greedy sometimes i think everyone will be in check but going forward, the way I see this is that neo banking is the right way forward for every uh, different use case, for that matter, where the front end application is of a uh, fintech, where the customer facing organization is of fintech, and the bank is the older, mature back end processor who is just thing that fintech is in check, and the regulator is
0: seeing that both of them are in check or not. All right, great, great. Uh, so, uh, thank you, uh, Ryan and uh, Nikhil. I mean, we had a very interactive and very informative session. Uh, how open bank is coming? Uh, 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 open banking is enabling the use cases. How regulatory landscape is shaped? Uh, what are the major security concerns around awareness around partnerships? So, it was a really insightful uh, uh, discussion uh, for our listeners uh and uh, really thank you for that and uh, uh, we will continue uh, running our uh, uh, fintech x series with uh, such insightful and interactive discussions uh thank you for being here uh, really appreciate uh, uh, your insights thanks thank for you. having me thanks nikhil thanks everyone yeah thank you thank you everyone thanks, thanks.
2: bye